Good morning. Hope you're good. Hope you've had a, a good week. Um, we're going to continue this morning, um, kind of building off of where we were last week, and, and we're going to drop back a little bit and review where we were last week for those who weren't here. Um, I'd encourage you, uh, if you weren't here, maybe go back and, and check out the message from last week online, uh, just to be able to see where we are. We've been talking for quite a while about how um, I've sensed that the church was in somewhat of a transition, and feel like now we've sort of entered into somewhat of a new season um, and, and where we're heading. And last week, we started talking about this. And uh, one of the things that we looked at to begin with was um, how good God's been to us as a body, as a church, uh, in the last 10 and a half years. We saw um, really how the salvations, the baptisms, the people who found community and began to grow in their relationship with Christ and the church. And um, just seeing all of that take place uh, has been amazing. Uh, then I told you last week about how uh, I felt like we had really focused uh, the last 10 and a half years a lot of attention on the first part of that original mission statement that we felt the Lord gave us for the church. And the original mission statement was to connect unbelievers to God and believers to each other through the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And over the last 10 and a half years, we saw a lot of people come to know Christ. And we saw um, a lot of, of people get into connect, uh, connect groups and different types of uh, community with each other. And so we saw that happen. What I feel like the Lord's leading us to now is really to begin to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Or maybe a more simple way of saying it is prepare people to do God's work in the world, to really take now that God's gathered a community of people that we begin to um, teach and train and empower the body of Christ to be the body, to be the church, um, the community of Jesus that he has created us to be. And, and so we said that there would be two goals that, that we feel like the Lord has really put on our hearts. One is that people will become spiritually mature uh, and, and reproducing disciples. In other words, that, that we are equipped um, and, and we've grown to a place where we can help uh, reproduce Christ in others as Jesus and the Holy Spirit uses us to walk beside them, to teach and train and empower them as they grow in Christ. Um, the other thing, and we're going to look at this a little more in depth today and really over the next few weeks, we talked about getting out of what I call this pastoral or broken system. Um, and, and we're going to look at that in just a second. How many of you were here? You remember us talking about that at the end of the message last week? Anybody? Yeah, good. And, and so um, we, we're going to look at this again. And if we go back to this, if you have your Bible, I hope you do. I encourage you to bring them last week. Um, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We've talked through this chapter a lot. I just want to read two verses from it, uh, maybe three, and then we'll get into that. But go to Ephesians if you run through the Gospels and Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. Uh, you'll come to Ephesians and Ephesians chapter 4. So let's look at the first uh, verses here. Verse, well, let's start with verse 11 and go through 13. It says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And we're going to look in just a second back at um, this pastoral model, this pastoral system that the church tends to exist in today and the biblical model. Before we get into that, though, I want to pray for us um, and then we'll jump in. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for all you're teaching us and showing us. I thank you for Jesus who gave his life for us that we could have life, that's called us to such a greater purpose in life. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding to be able to see that more, to be able to grasp more who we are in you and who we are called to be as the church and God to embrace the mission you've put us on. So Lord, we thank you for that. We praise you, God, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. And so I want to start out, if you were here last week, you can help me with this. Those of you who weren't, you'll pick up pretty quick. But if we look at this pastoral system that existed, what do we say the foundation of the church should be, right? The, the very foundation of it is what? Jesus, right? So there it is, Jesus, 
Yep, took a little while for our service. Got a little nervous. We weren't going to have it. But Jesus, so we got the foundation, right? Okay, and so we looked at this. There is no other foundation that can be laid. Uh, we're going to talk about this a good bit more in just a second. What do we say, though, that typically is the next layer? We, we talked about this, and who typically in the church is viewed as the next most important person? It's like Jesus, then who? The pastor. We talked about this. The pastor or the staff of the church comes next. And we talked about, though, that that can become an issue. Uh, if you look at just this church alone and you figure that probably if everybody showed up on one day, we really don't know how many people that'd be, but, but at minimum, probably 1,500 to 2,000 people, okay, that showed up on one day. And so on top of the staff, then you've got this next layer that is 1,500 to 2,000 people. Typically, what people will say is that in the church world, you should have one full-time staff person for about every 100 people in the church, for every 100 attenders. And so if you look at this, that puts us at maybe 18 or so full-time people. But even if you break it down to one per 100, does that even make sense to think that we can do what this is telling us to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that we become mature, so that we become the fullness of Christ, so that we experience the fullness of Christ as the church, and so that we display the fullness of Christ to the world. Does it make sense that that could possibly happen with this model? Absolutely not. And so what the church has done to try to somehow produce people who um, and mass produce people who can reproduce Christ and who are mature, we've inserted another layer between staff and the people and its ministry functions and programs. And so the last slide on this one shows you this, that the staff begins to focus on these functions or ministries, these programs, rather than on people. And so this can't possibly work. This is, not only does it not make sense, to think that all of this can set on a handful of people, but it's not biblical. It's not the way the Bible is laid out. This is something, this system is something that man has created. It's not the way God intended it to be. And we can see this clearly in scripture. And so what ends up happening is staff performs functions or programs, puts programs together to support people. We think if we can run people through a 12-week class and they all move through it at the same pace, they all get a bunch of information that somehow information is going to make them mature in Christ, reproducing themselves in other people as, as Jesus is using them. The problem with that is that doesn't work because information doesn't make disciples. God makes disciples through people. It's life on life. And so this system right here can't work. It's why we call it the BS system, the broken system. Okay? It doesn't work. What's the biblical model? We'll go to that now, the foundation. The foundation is Christ, is Jesus. We see that here. I want you to uh, see it more clearly even in just a second. But then the next layer, according to Ephesians 4.11, is that God has given leadership giftings. He's graced people with certain leadership giftings so that we function to equip the saints, to prepare people to do God's work in the world. The problem is we typically think that the people who are in this leadership development all get a paycheck from the church. That's not true. This, this layer should be school teachers. It should be construction workers. It should be accountants. It, it should be all kinds of people that God has not only called, but has been prepared and, and equipped to function in this way to equip the saints for the work of ministry, which is the next part where people are equipped, people are prepared, which is what it says in Ephesians 4.12, that these leadership giftings and graces are given so that people are equipped. And after they're equipped, this is what begins to happen. Each part of the body begins to do its work. And, and here's the thing that we would think, and a lot of people begin to think is, well, I'm not Called to, do, called to ministry, because we think about ministry, again, as somebody who they get their paycheck from the church. That's not ministry. 
If you are a Christian, if you are a disciple of Christ, you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to ministry. The challenge with it for us is we've never seen it done this way. And, and when we talk about this, I know I've heard questions from different people, like what does this look like? How's that work? What's, listen, this wasn't all shown to me in a 40-minute session. We're not going to get to everything in a week, right? It's going to take time. And we're going to roll this out. We're going to begin to walk through this together. And we're going to begin to see what this looks like to move. And we can put them side by side now if we can. To move from this to this. To see people stepping into uh, the role in the body that God has called them to be. To help, to, to be um, each part doing its work. It's going to be good. It's going to be great. It's going to take a while to get there. Listen, we've been in this rut. The church has been in this rut of this pastoral system for a long time. We didn't get there overnight. We're not going to get out of it overnight. It's going to take patience. And so for the next few weeks, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at these. We're going to see why some of this doesn't work, and we're going to see what's necessary to be able to get to this. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the very first part is the foundation. We say the foundation is Jesus. The foundation is Jesus in both. And most churches today would agree with that, that the foundation is Jesus. But I believe this. I believe that in many ways there are cracks in that foundation. And I want to talk about those today. First of all, I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 2. I want to lay this out for you where, where we can see what the Bible says about Jesus and the importance of Jesus as the foundation. In this, Paul writing to the churches in Ephesus and, and in that area, he, he's writing to them about unity and about how they've been brought to life in Christ and how Jew and Gentile have been reconciled. And in verse 19, he says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. In other words, Jews and Gentiles, those Jews and non-Jews have been brought together in Christ to be members of his household. He says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. In other words, the apostles and prophets, the big A apostles, Paul, Peter, James, John, these leaders of the first church and these prophets, they, they, through them, God has given us his word. And so the foundation becomes the word of God, which we know that the word was made flesh in Christ. And he says this, with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And so we see this where he's saying, listen, God's word was given and, 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 and it's the word that reveals Christ. And Christ is not only the foundation, but he's saying he's also the cornerstone. And we need to understand what he means by this. He means that by Jesus being the cornerstone, he would have been the very first part of this foundation that was laid. He's saying he's the beginning of it. He, it was also the most important part because it, it determined the integrity and even the direction of how the rest of this building would be built. And so he's saying, listen, and he says over in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you can go read verses 10 and 11 sometimes, but he talks about how no other foundation can be laid. Why? Because it's Jesus who determines the strength of it. It's Jesus who determines the, the direction of it. It's Jesus that determines the integrity of it. And he's saying there's no other, other person or thing that this can possibly be built upon. He's saying this is important. This is foundational that we understand this, that Jesus is the beginning. He gives it its strength. He makes it secure. He gives it direction. And so we have to see this. The problem with it, though, I believe there are some cracks in the foundation of the church today and how we see Jesus, how we see the church, how we see our purpose. And so I want to talk about those today. The very first crack in this foundation, I believe, is this, 
that in many cases in our culture, in the church, there's been no clear call to follow Jesus or to become a disciple. A disciple is basically someone who has one, accepted Jesus and his teachings, but he also follows his way of life and embraces his mission. And in so many ways and in in many ways in the churches today, we've not had this clear call to follow Christ. We've not had a clear call to what it means to be a disciple of Christ. We maybe have accepted, yeah, the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. We may have accepted, yeah, his teachings are good. They're wise. But in a lot of ways, people, we've not yet come to this tipping point where we go from um, accepting to following. And, And see, sometimes people will say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't know if I'm a disciple. There is no such thing. If we're a Christian, then we're a disciple. If we're a disciple, we're a Christian. There's not a hierarchy of of faith where I say, well, I'm a Christian or are you a disciple? I don't think so. You either are or you aren't. You're either all in or you're not. It's about position. I'm either in the kingdom of darkness or I'm in the kingdom of light. And we have to understand this clear call. Back up now to the very first book of the New Testament, Matthew. And let's go to chapter four, because I want you to see this in the life of the disciples and what it looks like. Chapter four in Matthew, verse 18, it says this. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with his father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, we probably, if you've been around church, you've heard this. You've heard people talk about how Jesus took them from being fishers, fishermen to becoming fishermen of men, right? And we, we look at that, and we, we've talked about that. But a lot of times we miss this fact that, that these men, it wasn't as if they had never heard of Jesus. It wasn't as if they weren't acquainted to Je- with Jesus, that they had never been introduced to Jesus, that they never spent time with Jesus. Many times we think when we read this that Jesus is just walking by, he sees them, and he's like, hey, come follow me. And they're like, okay. Like they, they just like out of nowhere, right? But that's not what happened. If you go read the very first part of the Gospel of John, he begins to talk about this. Some were introduced to Jesus uh, by John the Baptist. Some people believe from the way things are written that, that, that they, these four guys were with him when he went to Cana and he turned water into wine. So maybe they even saw miracles, that they had spent time with him. They had been around him. They had observed him. They began to recognize him. Some even say that they had gone as far as coming to a place of recognizing with some understanding that he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who had come to rescue them. And so it's not like it was just some magical, you know, fairy dust kind of thing that, that, you know, just wham. And they're like, okay, I want you to see this because this is important and this is foundational. This is where we have kind of gotten off a little bit in the church. These men, had been around, they had observed Jesus. They had heard him, seen him, observed him in his life. But there came a point where there was a tipping point where it went from observing and possibly even accepting him as savior, possibly even recognizing in him the Messiah. There had to come a point though, when it went from observation, possible acceptance, to a tipping point of following. See that? It's huge. It's foundational. We live so much in the church off of, well, I've accepted it as truth, 
but has it tipped to the point where I follow? Think about what's happened here. These men are doing what they do to make a living. They've been fishing or they're preparing to fish. They're in a boat with their father or getting ready to be. Jesus calls them. They've observed, they've watched, they've seen. There's something the Spirit is telling them. He's the one. He says, come follow. They leave it. What did they leave? They left their profession, the way of life. And I'm not telling you today that if you come to this place of a tipping point of going from mental ascension and acceptance of Jesus to I'm all in following Jesus with all of my life, that Jesus is gonna say, you've been an accountant, now you're gonna be a preacher. I'm not saying that. Most of you, that's not gonna happen. What Jesus is gonna do is he's gonna make you a fisher of men where you are. For some, he might call you out. He did for me. Got me off a 120-degree roof, and now I sit in the office all day. Praise Jesus, right? People are like, no wonder you went into ministry. Sometimes I'd rather be on the roof, right? Um, but but we, we recognize this, that there was a, they left it. They left it all. They left their, their father. Listen, do you think there might have been some hard feelings with dad? They're over there working. He looks up and they're going after some rabbi, leaving him with the work. Maybe he had recognized it too. And he's like, go get them boys. Or maybe he's like, what? what's going on? There could have been all kinds of issues. We know Peter had a wife and his mother-in-law. They lived in his, his, his home, right? What were they thinking? Now he's leaving. He's walking away from our way of, of survival. There could have been so many issues, but it came to a tipping point. It came to this place where they went from acceptance and observation to follow all in. We've missed this in the church in many ways. See, there's, there's no middle ground. As I said, we're either in or we're out. Jesus is either Lord or he's crazy. There's no, there's no way to balance this out in any other fashion. I either follow or I deny. I may accept, but listen, if I accept but I don't follow, if I'm not all in, then I've missed this call to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We've got to see this because that, that guys, listen, that is at the most basic, elemental, foundational. It's, it's as foundational as it gets with our faith. Am I all in? Or am I not? Which kingdom do I belong to? The second crack in the foundation is this. There's been no clear call to Jesus' church or the body of Christ, his community. Those three words can really be used interchangeably. There's no clear call to Jesus' church or the body of Christ, this, this community of Jesus' followers. In many ways, we've missed this, not understood it. And I want you to see this more clearly today, that when Jesus calls us as a disciple, he doesn't just call us for us. He doesn't just call me. He calls us together. And this is really important. We've missed this for far too long. Go a few chapters over from chapter 4 to chapter 16 in the book of Matthew. We're going to begin reading in verse 13. I want you to see this because as you're turning, try to listen to this. In the last several decades, few decades, there's been a huge emphasis, and rightfully so, there's been an emphasis put on this that we are called to have a personal relationship with Jesus, okay? Anybody ever heard that before? Personal relationship with Christ. That is absolutely 100% true, that we have a personal relationship with Jesus. 
Sometimes we, we focus so much, though, on that that we don't see the bigger picture of what God is calling us to. Listen to Matthew 16, 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. And, and so let's look at what's gone on. These disciples have come to a tipping point in, in Matthew chapter four. They begin to follow. Over time, he's picked up some others that came to that tipping point. They began to follow. We come to chapter 16. They've seen even greater things that Jesus has done. He then asked them, who do people say I am? They begin to name all these different things that people are saying about Jesus. He looks at them. He says, but who do you say I am? Peter, usually the first one to speak, he says, you're the, the, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus tells him, this was revealed to you by the Father. It wasn't revealed to you by man. Even the great things you've seen, they were signs that pointed to this, but ultimately the Father's revealed this. He says to Peter, he says, um, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And so we look at this and there's been a lot of uh, misinterpretation of this. In fact, um, in the Catholic system, this is much of where the, the tradition of the Pope comes from. They look at it as Peter is the actual rock, the one upon whom the church would be built on. But, but that's not what the scripture is saying. In fact, that practice of the Pope and the Pope being um, always being the descendant of Peter, that was in place before this scripture was even associated with it. It was kind of like finding a scripture to back up what we're doing. And so here's the thing, guys. We got to see that that's not what he's talking about. What is he talking about? He's talking about this new revelation or understanding of who Jesus is. This is the first time that they've really looked and grabbed hold of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of God. Their understanding is still limited. And Jesus says, that's right, Peter. And this revelation and this faith is what I'm gonna build this church upon. So let me ask you this question. What was the purpose then, the greater purpose even, of Peter's revelation? What was the greater purpose that, Jesus, that Peter realizes Jesus is the Messiah? Was it so Peter could just have a personal relationship with Jesus? It's not a trick question, it's right there. No, it was so that Jesus could build his church so that the revelation, the faith, leads to the building of a community of believers, the body of Christ, so that we're joined together, brought together as one, not divided and splintered all over the place, not bickering and fighting. He's saying, listen, this is the faith, and upon this faith, I'm gonna build this building, this, this temple, but it's not gonna be made with metal studs and sheetrock. It's gonna be made with black and white, with Chinese and Hispanic. It's gonna be made with people with this language and that language, and I'm gonna build it together, and it's gonna be beautiful, and the world is looking for a, a, a tangible vision of an invisible God. He's, they're gonna look at this, and they're gonna see what he looks like. And this is the point. It's not for us to rest in our, per, our personal relationship with Jesus. The love of God poured out into us. It's no doubt it's the motivation for all that we do. But it opens up something so much bigger. I want to show you one more thing under this one, under recognizing this clear call. If you go to the right a good ways, go all the way through the Gospels, Acts, all the way through Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Come to Galatians chapter 5. I want you to see this because I think this is super important. It's foundational again. 
Verse 22 of chapter 5 in Galatians. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit. How many of you have heard of that? Fruit of the Spirit, anybody? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, or forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such thing there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And listen, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. That seems somewhat of an odd conclusion to that paragraph to me. Hey, manifest these things in your life as the Spirit works in you. And by the way, don't become conceited and provoking and envying each other. And typically, this is what we've always known about the fruit of the Spirit. is The fruit of the Spirit and the purpose of the fruit of the Spirit is so that in my life, people can see love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in my life because those are the character and nature and attributes of God. And so I'm to display those to people in the world. Again, that is true and that is not wrong, but I would say this, that it is incomplete. It is absolutely true that as the Spirit works in us, it produces, He produces the fruit of love and joy, all of those things. But I want to go back now and I want to read this in context with where He really begins in verse 13 of chapter 5. Listen closely to this. Read along. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. In other words, you're free in Christ. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, listen, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. As we begin to read this, do you see the context that he's saying these things in? It's in relationships, in the church. He's saying, don't bite and devour each other. Love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's all-encompassing relationship. He says, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. What does the flesh desire? My flesh, my natural man. It desires what I want. It desires to preserve myself. It desires to... um, to gratify every desire that I have in my natural self. But he says that if you walk in the Spirit, you won't gratify that. If you follow Christ, if the Spirit's working in you, you won't gratify that flesh. You'll begin to serve others. Humbly in love, as he said. They are in conflict with each other so that you're not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Listen to what he says here. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Listen, all of these things, sexual immorality doesn't just happen in my body. It's happening in someone else's too. Listen to these sins. Idolatry and witchcraft. Witchcraft manipulating people. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. What are all those? They all point to some dysfunction of relationship. I warn you, as I did before, and here's the thing, guys, I want to say this real quick. We can think that sin only affects me, it affects everybody around me, it affects relationships. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is this. And so when we look at this, what's he telling us is so important about the fruit of the Spirit? Is it to manifest God's character and attributes to the world around us? Absolutely. But he's saying, listen, if you're going to be the glorious church, this body of believers, this community of believers, you're going to have to have the love of of God. You're going to have to have the peace and the patience, the joy, the kindness. You're going to have to have all of this in your life so that you can be the, the body, so that you can get along, so that you can strive for unity. Why do we need this? 
so that I can love knuckleheads like some of y'all and you can love knuckleheads like me, right? So that we can get along, so that we can have a, a clear understanding that our differences are not as big as we think they are in light of God's grand scope of purpose and mission. So my revelation of Jesus, my personal relationship with Jesus, it doesn't end there. It opens up to something bigger, which is the body of Christ, the community of believers, that we become one together. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, we become mature together. It doesn't stop with me. The third one and the last, the last one we'll talk about today, the third crack in the foundation is that there's been no clear call to Jesus's mission. We, we, we haven't heard a clear call to Jesus's mission. If we have, then we've ignored it as the church. So the first thing is I haven't heard or haven't responded, haven't had that tipping point, a clear call in response to follow Christ. Second one, I haven't heard a clear call to being a part of the body. Maybe I've stopped short of that. It's incomplete. I need to recognize that my call is to be a part of the church. And many people will say this, well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Well, in that system, you don't in a way. They'll say, well, you need to come for fellowship. That's true, but what are we fellowshipping for? What's the purpose of it? So I feel better. You need to come and hear the word. What's the purpose of it? So I can modify my behavior. There's a greater purpose in this. The third one, though, is we haven't heard a clear call to the mission. Just like Peter's revelation of Christ, there was a bigger purpose in that Jesus is building his church. Just like our revelation of Christ, there's a bigger purpose, Jesus building his church. Just like our personal relationship with Christ, there's a greater purpose, Jesus building his church. Well, the church being built has a greater purpose and that is to fulfill the mission of Christ. To complete it. What's the mission of Christ? We'll flip back now to the left. Acts chapter one, beginning in verse one. When we read this, this, gospel, or this book, we need to understand that Luke wrote it. Luke wrote the gospel of Luke and Luke wrote the book of Acts. In the gospel of Luke, G, um, Luke tells us about Christ's life. He tells him about his preaching, his teaching, his healing, how he worked and the ministry he did, the mission he came to fulfill. When we come to Acts, we're gonna see in just a second that Acts is a continuation of Luke's writing, but instead of Jesus physically being there to do the ministry, Jesus begins to do the ministry through the work of the Spirit, but his mission and ministry continues nevertheless through the church. The book of Acts is all about how the Spirit of God continued the work of Christ through the church the body of Christ, Jesus's community of believers. And so in very first verse, he says, in my former book, Theophilus. So what was the former book? Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. I've always wondered, what were the convincing proofs? Because if a dead man walks through a door and stands in front of me, that's pretty convincing. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Understand Jesus is not looking at Peter and saying this. He's looking at all the believers. We'll read later, or you would read later if you keep going. There's about 120 with them at that time. He's looking at all of them. He's saying you, you all, y'all will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He goes on, then they, they, not Peter, not one or two, they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? 
He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you, you, all of you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, all of you, not Peter, all of you, and you will be my witnesses, not one or two, but all of you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so what's he telling them? He's saying, listen, I want you to see this, guys. Jesus is saying, listen, not only is the revelation and the coming to faith and the tipping point where you begin to follow me, not only is it incomplete without you becoming a part of the body and you being equipped and part as part of the body and you doing your part in the body of Christ to carry out the mission of Jesus in the world. Not only is, is it incomplete for you to just have a personal relationship if you don't become a part of the body, but it's also incomplete if the church doesn't complete the mission of Jesus. You see how these build my personal relationship leads me to being not only in Christ as, as a believer, but I'm in Christ as in his body. And then the church, the body, is called to carry out the mission in the world to complete what Jesus began. He tells them, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But see, that's not happening. Why is it not happening because we're in a system where all of you who are so gifted and graced and called and empowered by the Holy Spirit, you haven't yet tapped in. You haven't yet been prepared. You haven't yet been equipped. You haven't yet even been told in many cases that you are important to this mission. It's not for one man to prepare on Sunday to come and disseminate information. It's for you to be equipped and prepared to go out there, for us to go together, locked arm in arm, and be the body of Christ in the world, giving the world a tangible vision of an invisible God. Why do you think they call the church the body of Christ? Think about it. When Jesus was on earth, the Bible tells us we can look at Jesus' ministry on earth and who he is and what he's like and understand who God is. Why now would Jesus call us the body of Christ? Because now people look to us to see what God's like. But how bad have we dropped the ball? That's not to bring condemnation. It excites me because I recognize with some adjustment and some realignment how powerful the church can be. This system, this system is not the church that God said the gates of Hades would not come against. This church that Jesus says that the gates of Hades cannot come against is the church where every believer is equipped and every believer understands they are a minister of the gospel and they're, they're equipped and confident and they know their competence is in Christ and they know that they've been filled with the Holy Spirit and they know that the boldness of the Spirit is in them and they know that there's gonna be persecution and maybe some, some rejection and they know that there's some things that are gonna go on. I know that teaching and talking about some of the stuff I'm talking about is gonna come, but guess what? I, I, there's no way I can stand here and see this and not say it. If we get to the tipping point, and many people in the church today need to get to the tipping point of faith, faith that leads us to follow. If we get to this realization that my personal relationship with Christ has brought me into a corporate relationship with him and his body. If, if we get this understanding that the reason the church exists is not so we have a place to gather on Sunday, not to come in and leave feeling better. I hope you do, but understand that's not the grand purpose of it. The grand purpose of the church is to carry out his mission in the world. We've talked about this a gazillion times in the last year but it's to see Genesis 1.28 fulfill the original purpose of God's creation of humans, to fill the earth with his image, that the earth would be ruled and reigned in a way that brings him glory, that that could happen. And listen to me, guys, that could happen in our lifetime. 
Jesus said that the end won't come until every nation has heard. But do you know this? Listen, it would take God opening doors and, and making opportunity, but he's pretty good at that. Do you know that for every one unreached people group in this world, there are 500 plus churches. For every one people group, people that listen, we take it for granted. I come in and I say, open your Bibles. Let's turn, let's talk about Jesus. And we're like, he's become familiar. He's just ho-hum. He's like the neighbor across the road. See him all the time, hear about him all the time. Got to know him a little bit. But he's just familiar to us. And there's people right now in all kinds of different places and situation where darkness is ruling and reigning because they've never even heard the name of Christ. While 500 churches per one unreached people group sits on their butt and does nothing about it. How can we say we are followers of Christ if we won't take this seriously? See, to be a follower means he calls the shots. And that's not popular in this world today. Nobody likes being told what to do, but he's either Lord or he's a lunatic. If he's not Lord, then you're, you basically have to say, I don't believe he is who he says he is. If he is Lord, he calls the shots. Either he has all authority or you are in rebellion against him. I don't know how to say it any more clearly than that. If we're gonna get to where God has called us to here, then we've gotta wrestle with some of those things. We gotta make a decision. Like we, we can't think and pretend that I'm gonna walk on this fence somehow and I'm gonna do a, a balancing act that's good enough it impresses God. You're either in or you're not. I mean, it, it just is what it is. I either follow or I don't. We've gotta wrestle with that. We gotta wrestle with, am I willing to count the cost of not only following but the cost that it's gonna take for me to be prepared and equipped, are there things on my plate I'm willing to get rid of so I can actually function as a part of the body of Christ? Or, or am I just gonna hoard all of this over here because I think it brings me happiness, but everybody I see around me is so frazzled and busy and going crazy. So how's this satisfying you? But we're like, oh, don't touch anything on the plate. Meanwhile, we don't even know what direction we're going in. But oh, this is, this is life. And Jesus tells us, look, enter through the narrow gate because broad is the path, broad is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to life. And sometimes when we come to Christ, it feels like this, man, I'm kind of getting, uh, it kind of feels constraining because we can't take all of our stuff, our agenda, my priorities, my goals, my things with me. I can't carry it with me. I can tell you this, when I said yes to follow Jesus, I didn't see myself doing this 19 years later. It feels constraining, but yet scripture tells us this. He doesn't say enter through the narrow gate so your life can be hell from now on. He says enter through the narrow gate because on the other side of it is life. And we come through this narrow gate and we leave this stuff behind, all this stuff that only keeps us stressed out anyway. And we begin to walk through the narrow gate and we start to walk through and our, we lift up our eyes and this thing opens up and we begin to see what life is really all about. While meantime, many, he says, are on this path that leads to destruction and it feels like it's broad and it's open and it's wide and man, I can do whatever and oh, I can chase every dream and every goal. I can go after everything and the whole time it's narrowing down until at some point that maybe tomorrow, next week, next year, next decade, 50 years from now, 
we realize it's a dead end and the only thing we've been walking towards is destruction. And guys, I, I, I say all this to challenge us. Have I decided to follow? Am I following? Has it tipped for me? Am I willing to embrace the body? Are we perfect? No. That's why it takes God in us to love each other, to even be able to strive for unity in the church. Am I willing to embrace the mission, whatever that means? Guys, that's what, that's what Jesus came for. To reconcile, 2 Corinthians 5 says to reconcile, not just to reconcile you and I. We always hear, you know, if you were the only person on earth, Jesus would have died for you because he loves you so much. That's true, but guess what? We're not the only person on earth. You're a snowflake. You're a fingerprint. There's only one like you. Absolutely true. But guys, there's a bigger purpose. Second Corinthians 5 says that Jesus didn't come to reconcile a snowflake. He didn't come to reconcile a fingerprint. He didn't come to reconcile just one person. The Bible says he came to reconcile the world to himself. And where we are, Today, we have to decide, we have to make a choice this day, who we'll live for. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it corrects, it challenges, it even rebukes God, it teaches, it trains. Lord, challenge us, challenge me. Don't let me be comfortable God, make me the best for Christ that I can be. And do the same for every person in this room, God. Work in our hearts, Lord. Father, I thank you for the gifts and graces that are represented here that you've put here. Father, I pray you would stir hearts that people would be raised up. Give us wisdom as to how we do that, God. We don't have a, a model other than your word, Lord, that, that, that sometimes, God, we can't wrap our mind around. Show us, Lord, open the eyes of our understanding to see what you intend. And God, I pray we'll be teachable and moldable. I do you just do what you do in us, Lord. And God, we'll give you all the glory for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. May you guys, I hope you have a good week. I hope you'll ponder some of these things.